Hey, it's Lauren, here to tell you about our friends at DraftKings. Basketball season won't be around forever, so get in on all of the action now with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. DraftKings is giving new players a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Claim your free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes when using code TBPN during sign-up. Playing daily fantasy basketball is simple. Just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Maybe you follow baseball too, but missed the deadline for season-long fantasy? Now's the perfect time to get in on all the daily fantasy baseball action, where DraftKings has even more ways to make it rain. With DraftKings, payday comes every day for players, so what are you waiting for? Download the DraftKings app now and use code TBPN during sign-up. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. That's code TBPN and you can get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. This is Jake Fisher from Sports Illustrated and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Brooklyn has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome back on the NBA Beat. I'm your host, Aaron Fishman, and soon I'll be joined by our second straight guest from Atlanta. This time it's Kevin Cottrell Jr., here to discuss his debut book, Ball Don't Lie. On a related note, I want to congratulate friend of the show and two-time guest, Jake Fisher, on the May 4th launch of his book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. We look forward to reading and bringing him back on the show to discuss. But back to Kevin Cottrell, whose book came out in April of last year, and through first-hand reporting, highlights the compellingly honest stories of nine pro basketball players and one coach, not to mention the WNBA's Candace Parker, who lent her words to the forward. Kevin has been covering the NBA for more than a decade as a producer and researcher. He also molds minds as an adjunct professor at Clark Atlanta University. Before we begin discussing the book, you should know that Kevin holds the rare distinction of being one of the first people to learn of world-renowned musician James Brown's death. At the time, he was an obituary writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, fairly new to the job. When the call came in, It was Christmas, and Kevin was the only one there in the office. There you go. We'll keep the intro short and get to the good stuff, starting now. Just to begin, Kevin, I I really am excited to have you on the show to discuss your book, Ball Don't Lie. I'd love for you to just share how the idea for the book came about and what your first tangible steps were as you began putting that plan in motion. Yeah, so quite quite some time I had you know, um, 
I don't know, the, the interest in doing a book. I wouldn't say a passion, but I was always interested in just taking my love for writing to the next level. And um, my grandmother, somebody who planted the seed, she's like, oh, you should write a book. You're a good writer. And I'm thinking nobody wants to hear a story about me. Uh, so <laughs> I had to figure out how I could write, write about, you know, basketball uh, players careers or something since that's what I covered and actually um, uh, Chris Weber is somebody that I'm close with and kind of confide in about different ideas I bounce off of him and one day he was just like you know you should write a book you're a proverbial fly on the wall um, I let a lot of people would love to be in your shoes just to hear us talk and you know yeah and I was like okay if I do this book are you gonna be a part of the book or you just give me the idea and he's like no I'll be a part of it and that's kind of how I got started so my first steps was doing research on um, different people, like who would I want to be in a book? Why would I want it to be in a book? And honestly, the book started out as being the best game I ever played. And nobody could ever agree to the best game they ever played. So it quickly changed. Um, but yeah, I got me a wish list together. And pretty much I got like 98% yes on, on my ask. And um, the rest was just kind of history from there. That's really cool. That's a high success rate for booking people was um Chris Weber a, a big help in getting people or what was the process like? No, with I, that? no I, I never asked anybody to help me get anybody else. It's just um uh, relationships, you know, just built over time with all of these people. Uh, I just people I just reached out to, you know, I just I knew that I had a relationship with them. And if they said no, it wouldn't hurt my feelings kind of deal. I knew I didn't need to go through. Uh, a bunch of PR and managers. I could just go directly to the source, and that's kind of how I got to this group. And there were other people. I want other people. I wanted to. A lot of times, timing didn't work out, and so I wanted to move on. So I didn't drag my feet because the book took me about three and a half, four years to complete. Mm -hmm. So you interviewed some really big personalities, uh, but also a lot of them seemed really thoughtful and down to earth people. Were you surprised by? Uh, any of the interactions that you had with these basketball legends? I wasn't surprised by interaction because, again, I, I had those relationships kind of built, um, whether someone was surface or deep, depending on the individual. I was more so surprised by their memory and how easily they were able to just kind of like go back into that moment in time. Sometimes I might have had to refresh them with a YouTube clip, but when they got refreshed and man, they, they would remember that thing, that day, that moment, like it was yesterday. And that was probably the most amazing part of it all. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you about that because in my experience with interviewing professional athletes, a lot of times kind of like you alluded to, you just need to prime them if they've forgotten something or if their memory is a little bit inaccurate. And then once you give them that kind of anchor point, then they just, they get off running. It's like, triggers something in their memory and um right. i don't know if it's that a lot of um, pro athletes have photographic memories or really detailed memories but i feel like just because they have to be so detailed with everything their mechanics and their understanding of the game and it's like they tend to have really advanced memories yeah they do they tend to do so if someone is telling you something that's a little bit wrong you correct it and then then they're kind of back on track or you might use a quote where they say, I think something, but then you look up the correct information and then you, you kind of use that as a transition. Is that what you were doing in those situations? In terms of how I got them to remember you mean? Well, I mean, like if someone said, 
I think I fouled out, but they actually didn't or something. Yeah. If it was like five yeah, thousand, so, there was a minor detail that was wrong. Yeah. So I what I did was I watched games. So I would go through box scores. I'd watch the games. I would read news articles uh, after the games. Uh, things mm-hmm. that would t- take me back in that moment in time because I was ready for everybody to say, I don't remember. And I was, I wasn't going to take, I don't remember as an answer for anything. Um, you know, yeah. Steve Smith chapter, for instance, was, he got traded during nine 11. So I was able to take him back into the time of nine 11, a moment you're not going to forget or Shaq's birthday. Like, you know, you may not remember a lot of things you remember birthdays. Um, so I was able to just yeah. take people back to a certain moment in time that was not only big to fans, but would be big to them. That also helped. But having that ability to show video of a game also, you know, helped that added another dimension. Did you have the idea to use the format that you did where it's kind of like um, oral histories in a sense? A lot of really um, long quotes. So we're hearing directly from the player a lot of the time. And your your role is you're doing the research, the interviewing, of course, but you're also writing the intro and then you transition from quote to quote. Was that going to be the format in your mind or did that evolve over time as you're writing the book? No, that was going to be the format. I mean, when I going back to the whole original question of like, you know, me writing a book again, I never wanted to be the forefront of the book. I wanted to be the writer, but I wanted to share other people's stories that I thought was interesting. So I thought the quotes were very, very, very important. Um, I don't want to really paraphrase anything. I wanted you to feel what they feel. I wanted you to understand um, what, what they saw and how they thought, you know, things like that. Um, so the quote was the, yeah. the quote transition thing, like how, how you're mentioning it. That was that was definitely planned. Um, since I do have this journalistic background and foundation, that's probably, I guess, my style of writing, too. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it would be better to not only fit a book, but help the pages turn a little easier. Yeah, I can totally understand that choice that you made, too, because certain guys, I'm thinking of Isaiah Thomas, for example, can be a little bit repetitive in their quotes. But a lot of times it's important, the repetition. It serves to emphasize a certain point. You can tell the guy, the player is excited about something or there's a, a reason behind the repetition. I think it was Isaiah Thomas that he, was it him who said um, that basketball was like food to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was what that's that was his thing. Yeah, I think he said that a couple times, and and I thought it was more powerful that it was left in there, um, and and that it wasn't trimmed for space or something. And and like you said, you're the kind of behind-the-scenes journalist, you don't want to be the story, correct? It's more about highlighting right. these legends? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and that, yeah, and that was the thing. I wanted people to feel, like, get to understand his psyche. Like, you can only say he won two championships so many times, you know, um, if you want to, you know, give out somebody, uh, introduce fans to somebody, give them access that they didn't ever have kind of deal. So, yeah. You referenced earlier in our discussion that it was originally going to be the best game ever played. And then because it was difficult for the players to pick one or for one to be settled on, it kind of evolved into something different. But I thought you chose some really good points in these players and the coaches' careers, like Vince Carter, for instance, that iconic 
near perfect slam dunk performance. Shaquille mm-hmm. O'Neal, the birthday where he where he dropped seventy on the Clippers, just um, all all these cool moments. Sam Mitchell, he, he was the interim coach for the Minnesota Timberwolves when they upset the record setting Warriors. Tina Thompson's entry into the WNBA, and then later her first Finals appearance. So. I realize a lot of these may sound like obvious moments to highlight, but these are all basketball legends who have had so many iconic moments in their careers. How did you go about pinpointing one or two areas to focus on for each chapter? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, once guys are just like, I don't know, I, I felt like it would be easier for me to approach somebody and say, hey, Vince, you might have an interview about the dunk contest. Hey, Tina Thompson, mind if I interview you about being the number one pick in WNBA history? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, I just want to focus on that and you win in the first championship. To me, it was just, it, it it told them how to think. It told them where, where I was going and it made the interview and the interaction and their time more efficient. And also, if you bring up Vince Carter's dunk contest and he'd be like, oh, I remember the dunks. Yeah, but did you know he was injured going to the dunk contest? No, nah, yeah. So that when I found out things like that, I was like, okay, this is a perfect story to tell because, you know, people might think one thing and um, they get another. You know, Chris Webber, honestly, I don't think the game we talked about, ultimately him playing for the Sixers, that's not a game he wanted to even discuss. And I had to explain to him the reason why I wanted that game was because people will forget, A, that he got traded to the Sixers and B, his first game was against the team that traded him. Like, that's just a crazy story. And so it just made it yeah, easier for me yeah. to pinpoint. Yeah, it made it easier for me to pinpoint, do my research and then formulate the story out of it um, versus then uh, relying on them to tell me what story. Because they might have said my greatest game was in high school. I have no way to fact check it or anything. So, you know, that played a huge role. Yeah. Well, you came in with a specific angle. So, it could focus the interview subject because these figures have had such long storied careers. So it could be overwhelming and, and also just like you said, difficult to be efficient with their time where it's like, I just want to interview you about your career. Then it's so open-ended and right. it's just hard to get that degree of, of detail too. the, the book. That was one of the things I was impressed with was the level of detail that you elicited from that and and just the honesty and transparency was there anything you heard like i know you're close with chris weber so maybe maybe this was less surprising how bitter he was about that whole situation yeah how sacramento handled yeah it. yeah now i will say that i will say this i've i've explained to people that sometimes i went in thinking i'm gonna just get a good game story and a lot of times the background info that I shared, I went into the interview thinking, oh, I'll ask these questions just to get them talking. And then the game itself would just be the exciting part. So that kind of took on a life of its own. But what happened was it almost felt like a therapy session, like guys almost laying on the couch. And I took them back to this moment in time. And now they was expressing something that they never really got to truly express. And then by the end of the interview, they're like, Man, nobody's ever asked me such and such. You know, Sam Mitchell was like, as a coach, you never get asked about what you did right. You only get asked about what you did wrong. So for him, it was just like, wow, this was this was pretty cool. I never get those moments just to say, you know, what my coaching prowess was in this moment and why it worked. You know, so, yeah, that, those things were kind of surprising. 
Yeah, just to list a few other examples, because as I said, it was so impressive to me, the level of honesty and transparency that you got out of these highlighted players and Sam Mitchell. Sam Mitchell admitted that he wasn't ever really happy about how he became head coach, which you can understand given the tragic Flip Saunders situation, but she said it so directly. And then, um, as I mentioned, Chris Weber's bitterness about the trade, calling it the worst feeling of his career. Dennis Scott was really honest about his missed Eastern Conference semifinals free throws and being a weak defender, things like that. Shaquille O'Neal, he didn't take his um, pregame nap, right? Right. The day of the 70-point game. Yeah, those details, it's like... I, I realize that maybe um, after they've been so successful, there's not necessarily a need to keep some of this so close to the vest or private. But at least to me, I was surprised at just how how blunt they were. Even Rip Hamilton talking about Tibbs just over-practicing players. Yeah. Yeah, no, those guys, they really, you know, like I said, when they got comfortable and they got emotional – they weren't shy about opening up and sharing their feelings. They weren't. And that's yeah. what actually made the book to me great and unique. Um, you know, it could have been a podcast in this day and age. That would Those would have been a great podcast. That would have been a good first season rolling out 10 episodes, yeah. you know. Um, but, yeah, no, it just it, it, it truly took on a life of song when those guys got to getting comfortable. And I guess, you know, I guess it helps to have those relationships. I don't know if I would have reached mm-hmm. out to guys that I didn't know and got them to agree that they would have done that. But maybe now that the book is done, if I wanted to do a second one and they got to read a little excerpt, maybe they would trust me. I don't know. Yeah. I wanted to follow up on the reporting process. So you said that sometimes you showed them YouTube videos, but was it not a regular thing that you were watching the footage of those games that they were discussing with them? Because it seemed like you were. The level of detail that they had. Oh, I- we watched it together. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so so it's kind of yeah, like so like you're stopping it, and they're saying what you're seeing on this player, what was going through my mind then, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So I would actually take them through a moment, rewind it. I mean, Sam, it was like being in a coach's film room. You know, when he would break down terminology, we're sitting down. He might grab a piece of paper and start drawing a play out for me. So to show me how it was supposed to look. Then I got to see in the video why somebody did something wrong, um, you know, things like that. So it was just very interesting. He drew up a play. Rip Hamilton drew up plays uh, just to see how some of these guys mind work. is just it was pretty incredible. It's interesting, too, though, that they remember exactly what they thought. And I'm assuming that they're not making it up. I guess you, you know how you'll you'll think in a certain situation, but you did get into their minds a lot. They were never, though, um, the people that you interviewed never really shied away from saying what they were thinking at, at that moment. If it was something that came up, it was just, I'll just share it. Yeah, no. No, they, they were all pretty good. I mean, that might have been a couple of times where a guy might have been like, I honestly don't remember that, whatever you're saying. So I don't want to make something yeah. up now because they got yeah. into a flow of just honestly telling me how they felt in that moment and they didn't want to be reactive. Um, but for the yeah. most part, I'd say 90% of the time, they remember things well. You know, like jokingly, Shaq, 
may not have remembered uh, certain intricate details, but it was more so because the Lakers played the Clippers so many times, the games kind of ran together. But outside of yeah. that, um, yeah, outside of that, no, it was pretty, it was, it was it, they all remember pretty well. Just on a quick side note, I thought it was hilarious that he called it the Kareem game or that that was in a, he was in a Kareem zone with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as yeah, a Clippers. Yeah. I think it was consultant. I don't know if he was technically an assistant, but he was on yeah, their staff. Yeah, but he was over and, there. Right. Yeah. And, and he was um, Shaquille's idol or one of his idols. And so he kept looking over and Kareem wouldn't g- give him eye contact or acknowledge he give that he was contact. playing well, right? <laughs> that's, right that's hilarious right. to me. Yeah, that well, you're one of the best in the game already, one of the, the do- most dominant forces in the game, yet that still motivates you to just kill the other team that much more. Absolutely. Yeah. So, no, nah, nah, that was cool to see here, here for him. Um, and the, the funny thing just about it was just, you know, who knows if that's what Kareem was really thinking. Kareem might have been thinking, wow, this guy is just dogging my boys out kind of deal. It might not even been that personal, but but you know, what you do learn about all these great people and the way that they're they're wired is that, you know, he might have just needed that to get himself going and, and he might have just told and convinced himself that just that's what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Any little excuse that you can use, even if Shaquille deep down really didn't believe that that was the case, it was it was convenient. Right. It sounds like for him just to tap into that killer instinct. Did you ever interview any outside sources other than the highlighted players? I didn't. I thought about doing that. But the way I thought, well, the reason why I didn't was because I wanted it to just be this firsthand account of what they were going through and what they were experiencing. I didn't want it to become a thing where somebody else was like, no, I wasn't thinking that. That's not why I said that. I didn't want it to become a back and forth. You know, I just wanted it to be this thing where I'm sitting down with you. I'm asking, what were you thinking and feeling going through a moment? And, and that's all yeah. that, you know, I thought really mattered. Yeah. Yeah, that method definitely could serve its purpose, but that would have been an entirely different book where it would have been, um, yeah, it wouldn't have been just like one to each chapter is just this player. It would have been, okay, now I'm triple checking stuff. I'm going to get Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's perspective and all this crazy. Let's see what Steve Kerr thought about the Timberwolves upsetting that yeah that's just and then now it takes a lot a whole new life on its own and the whole point of it was supposed to be just learning about that individual which is why a lot of times i started with their upbringing or their start or whatever and got you to the moment so once you read how they you know reacted in a moment you understood the person and you understood what was going on so yeah yeah i i think it came across well and you set up their stories really expertly in my opinion um before you let them start telling it. But I did want to ask you about Candace Parker's involvement, two-time WNBA MVP, one of the league's most accomplished players of all time. How did you approach her about doing it? And why did you think her forward worked so well with the rest of the book? So the book was done. And I confided in Candace and I told her, I was like, I feel like something is missing. You know, I I was kind of disappointed that I only had Tina in the book I wanted more of a woman's voice in the book. I didn't want people to think that 
the perspective I was bringing is that, you know, men basically owned and ruled basketball. Even though the NBA has been around a lot longer than the WBA, I still felt like, you know, women needed a voice in these stories that I was trying to tell. Um, and she yeah, was just like, you know, important. yeah, I agree with you. So just whatever you need, let me know. At that point, I knew I was locked and solid on the book and I didn't want to do a whole chapter. And so I had other people in mind for the forward that I never spoke to about it. And I was like, well, you know what, if that's the case, since you're offering you my opinion in the forward for me. And so we had conversations and then, um, yeah, finally that's, you know, that's how it came about. I had consulted with different people around the game, the women's basketball game. And the insight that I was, mm-hmm. I was getting was kind of like, yeah, well, you don't want to do too many, you know, maybe you get something like one of the most impactful stories or two. And I was like, okay. And, and when I secured Tina, I just thought her story was so such a great story that talked about the birth of the WNBA that I was like, OK, this is cool. Um, but then when I was done, like I said, I didn't I didn't feel fulfilled. I honestly wanted to have 12 chapters because I was trying to play on the whole 12 man roster. Mm-hmm. There was one person I never got. And there was another person that I took out of the book on uh, the chapter just didn't feel complete to me. So I didn't want to force it. And um, so I mm-hmm. ended on 10 and I was like, well, that's a nice round number. So getting Candace, that just that helped for me. That, that, that just helped. There's one quote I wanted to read just on a different note that I thought was really interesting and funny. This was from Grant Hill in reference to playing a, a rookie Kobe Bryant at the Great Western Forum. And he was comparing him to Kevin Garnett, both of these guys soon to be hall of famers and his quote was i just felt like garnett was more like a deer in headlights his first year and kobe was like wow that surprised me a lot just how grant hill referred to kevin garnett not that it was yeah a purposeful slight but i just thought that's so fascinating to consider the differences in just approach as a rookie because you think of Kevin Garnett at least I do as fearless and like um, it's hard for me to go back to that time when he was a a rookie straight out of high school and just think that he may not have felt like he completely belonged in the NBA Um, but um, if you want to react to that quote specifically but also were there any other quotes off the top of your head that you're like wow, one, this is gold, but also two, I didn't really expect to hear this necessarily from this person. Well, I will say that that was gold in the sense of, I mean, it's Kobe, man, obviously rest in peace to Kobe. This is the interview was done yeah. long before Kobe's mm-hmm. passing. Um, but I think what he was just saying was just like, you know, Kobe was just more prepared for the NBA game itself, you know, not necessarily speaking to their play, but just understanding other players' tendencies, you know, being able to jump into a defensive uh, structure, you know, things that a lot of young guys, especially guys straight out of high school, may struggle with. Kobe was like NBA ready from that standpoint. You know, Kevin Garnett came in as a small forward. A lot of people don't remember that because they just think of him as one of the greatest power forwards the game's ever seen. So Grant's also speaking from the standpoint of I had to guard him. So his thing was I had to, I was – probably matched up with KG as a rookie more than I was as Kobe because Kobe was shooting guard off the bench kind of deal. So it wasn't ever really in the same rotations and things like that. Um, And that's kind of what he meant. He was just more so impressed with just how ready Kobe was for the game of basketball. But also I took it to mean fearlessness too. 
like he just he had no Kobe seemed like he had no fear. Right. Was that yeah, your interpretation? Every, that was one of the things for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't like Grant was saying, Hey, I'm a, I'm afraid I'm backing down from the great Kobe. It was like I never seen him. I didn't really um scout him. It wasn't like we were worried about him. He was still young in his rookie year. But to watch him play in that moment and how things were going, it was kinda like Oh wow, this is impressive! You know, this young guy's ready. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah. I'm trying to think outside of that. You know, probably another money quote, like you mentioned earlier, was Rip on Tibbs, just talking about the practices being too much. Um, right. I think Grand Hill had some really good ones. Just how he compartmentalized his career into different stages, and yeah, he kind of like barely ever thought about his days on the Pistons. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was interesting to hear, too. And it was, you know, part of it was like, you know, he got the pre-injury injury and then post-injury career um, that coincides with, you know, uh, Detroit, Orlando, Phoenix and L.A. So, yeah, no, he had some good stuff to say, man. It just he just showed how intelligent he was to basketball mind. Steve Smith was also interesting, just how a hot his perspective of how somebody thinks when they're hot is something I wasn't expecting. He's like, okay, I made four. I got four more I can miss before I'm bad. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. Because you're at 100%. <laughs> you go to 50. You're still having a good night. He was like, exactly. So I'm going to keep letting it fly. I don't care who's running at me, you know, or what. Um, and, and so, you know, just different things like that. A lot of times just seeing how a pro athlete of, a, that plays at an extremely high level thinks is unlike any other. Yeah, I've I've heard Grant Hill and Vince Carter talk a lot on TV and other media, and I've always been impressed by those two particularly with their thoughtfulness. And then also I've had the pleasure of interviewing Tina Thompson and Candace Parker, and I feel the same way about them. And, and a lot of these other guys that we've mentioned throughout the interview proved that too, that they think deeply about the game um, and are introspective about themselves too and honest and so i thought that came across and was really refreshing as we wind down though i really want to thank you for doing this it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you about your first book but one of the last few things i wanted to touch upon was it's not easy writing a book i'm in the process of writing my first one I would assume that you'd agree that there are many challenging aspects of it, uh, from reporting to the writing, researching, the publishing. Feel free to touch upon as many of those as you'd like, but I, I just love for you to share what some of the more challenging aspects were. Um, probably the most challenging aspect was just doing this whole thing independently. You know, a lot of people didn't trust or believe in my vision of the book because a they didn't think I can deliver those names, and b they didn't think those people would help promote the book. Um, so you know, you know, being a writer is one thing; being a publisher is a whole another thing. So I, I just didn't know anything about the process. Um, I was able to find you know some good independent outlets to go through, and that helped. But I mean, I learned a lot from it. But that probably made the process a little longer for me because I just wasn't in a rush to do it myself. Um, putting it all out and having a full-time job, being an adjunct professor, dad, you know, all of those things. So that was probably the one yeah. thing that I say was just the toughest part about it all. Yeah. Along the same lines, what would you say is the most rewarding piece or pieces of feedback you've gotten since it's come out? 
I think Sam Mitchell, Sam Mitchell, when he read his chapter, he called me and he was just overjoyed with his story being told exactly how he told it to me. Like I said earlier on here, it was like, you know, nobody ever asked questions to coaches about something they did good and why it worked. You know, uh, they'll ask him why they called a timeout or didn't call a timeout when a moment didn't work right, why they caught out a play, you know, things like that. But he was, you know, that was very rewarding for me. Uh, Tina Thompson loved her chapter. She's not somebody that's into self-promoting. Um, and so she's very, very humble, one of the most humble legends you'll ever meet. So to hear that she was pleased about how she was also depicted was good. Uh, Isaiah Thomas was also happy, too. So, you know, those are people I just didn't want to do anybody wrong. I don't want to steer anyone wrong. And I wanted to make sure that I did. You know, I treated them, treated them right. Um, I will say this, too. Dennis Scott was probably the best sit down interview experience I had. In terms of being open and and honest, not only just about the moment, but just like him sharing, hey, I wasn't in shape. This is why I lost my starting spot because I wasn't understanding. Like, I'm like, okay, I was 13 when this happened. Why did it happen? Oh, yeah, well, I lost my spot. I wasn't in shape. I had this guy take me to the pool every day. You know, I had to get my spot back. So, you know, his story was just like, oh, wow, I didn't know all of that. And so, you know, just the experience of just having those guys really sit down and trust me is just something that I, you know, I, I really appreciate and I'll never take that for granted. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the the vast majority of the people you highlighted in the book are also commentators on TV and stuff. So I, I would think that also helped in their ability to, to talk and, and tell stories. Yeah, I mean, it never hurts to talk about yourself, right? Like, if, if you can't say anything, you should be able to talk about yourself. But again, I think also just having them relive these moments, it's just that nostalgia. You know, I don't care if it's a shoot that came out when you were a kid that you weren't able to get. You remember why and all of those things. Same thing with mm-hmm. these moments. If it was a good, bad, and different moment, they'll remember for different reasons. And it just kind of unlocks something about them. And they just open up like, you know. Like crazy with Candace Parker, you know, the moment I wanted to, I wanted her bought on live moment. You know, that's what I wanted out of her. And her moment was just, yeah. you know, her rookie year, you know, becoming, a, you know, the first woman to win rookie of the year and MVP in the same season. And then finding out she was pregnant and still being able to bounce back and had this great 13 plus year career. That's something that, you know, she's not going to forget that. So, you know, that was just mm-hmm. cool. That was just really cool. Lastly, Kevin, I have to ask you about Sekou Smith. It was heart-wrenching to hear in late January that he passed away so young. And I considered him a friend. He wasn't just a a guest, a multi-time guest. He was always there for me. And we never met in person, but he would um, respond to emails with encouragement and and just be a, a supporter and a cheerleader. And Regardless of how busy he was, he would always make time. We wouldn't even yeah. be doing this interview if not for his recommendation to bring you on, too. So I'm really glad that we were able to do it. I'm sure he was um, always rooting for you, too, and your book. At least that's how it came across to me. What was Seku like as a, a friend, mentor, colleague, and any particular memories that stand out that you'd like to share? Well, yeah, if it wasn't for Sekou, I would have left journalism a long time ago. Before I started covering the NBA um, and I left the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we were there at the same time. Our careers overlapped there, and he kind of became a mentor of mine. And I was just getting down. I wasn't getting the opportunities that I wanted. Um, I wanted to be a freelance writer at the time for somebody like Slam Magazine. And 
I just, I just was, I was always like a day late, you know, a step short on those opportunities. And one time we met, I'll never forget. We went and met at Panera Bread right by where we live. And he just encouraged me to keep writing, keep creating and don't, you know, don't give up. And um, eventually I got on at NBA TV. And then the following year he got on at NBA.com and we were back working again. And I just, from that moment, I just never let him forget how much I appreciated him. Um, throughout the book process, I bounced a lot of ideas off of him, his thought thought process. Um, I even wanted to do a book with him. I thought, man, we we could do a great investigative book about something that happened in sports history. Um, um, you know, just I don't know. Sekou is just one of the best minds I've ever been around when it comes to sports and writing, the way he thinks, the way he reacts. I was able to produce a couple of years ago. We did a race to MVP feature and we just rode out. Uh, I think it was five vignettes on why these five guys were all MVP worthy. And I want to say it was a year that Russ was averaging the triple-double for that first time. And then James Harden mm-hmm. was doing what he was doing. And then LeBron was coming along. And it was a couple other people that was in the race as well. But, you know, we got to write and produce that together. That was fun. So he just always was somebody that if I had a question or questioned something about what I was doing, he'd be the first person I pick up the phone and call. Um um, him and David Aldridge, you know, the two best journalists I've ever had a chance to be around, work with, and just pick their brain. So, yep. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. No problem. This was great. Thanks, Kevin. It was a fascinating read and a job well done by you. I oh, appreciate it so much. No, it, was, it was fun. It was good to talk about the book. Uh, I haven't done it in a while, so I do appreciate it. My pleasure.